This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Report. Let's do the show, folks. Come, come, come. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. No, hi there. Welcome, welcome to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton. Glad to have you back on board. As we do yet another episode talking all things about that galaxy far, far away. If you if you like Star Wars, if you find yourself someone who considers yourself a Star Wars fan, a uh, a fanatic, not that kind of fanatic, but you know, you know a fan, fanboys, fangirls, welcome, welcome to the podcast. It's a uh, <clears throat> you know, I saw a, a, a top article right now. Uh, this is what I do sometimes when I start the show. Um, but I just kind of see what what's trending on Google News for Star Wars, and I'll kind of check in and see what it is when we're getting ready to talk about it. And uh, I'm noticing <clears throat> right here the number one story is a feature in Esquire magazine on Alden Ehrenreich. Look who's back in the news. So, uh, it's only appropriate today that I'm writing solo. <laughs> That's a long way to go for that joke. But yes, uh, I am your host, Riley Blanton, and uh, I am uh, solo today. However, the the bulk of this episode is a very special, stick around, a very special interview, long-form conversation that I have with the inimitable uh, Mr. J.W. Rensler, author of all the making of Star Wars books, long-time Lucasfilm uh behind the scenes not um non-fiction editor writer uh extraordinaire uh and he gives us a lot of insight into uh, his time at lucasfilm and um specifically i got I had a chance to really dig deep into the um into the history and the making of the prequels something i haven't gotten to do a lot of and so uh and and, and also i should uh, throw out a shout out right now available right now Check the notes in the, for this episode, but there's a link right there to his brand new book called All Up um, and, and support. He's a super cool guy who finds himself on the other side of Lucasfilm and Disney, looking at Star Wars from the other side. However, we as fans uh, still love and appreciate all the work that he's put in over the years to bring, honestly, the best behind-the-scenes look at the original trilogy ever. So uh, he was super fantastic. Stick around for a second. But, but hey, there's also... I, I couldn't just... That was just going to be the show, honestly, guys. That was going to be it. I was just going to release that, in the interview, and that was going to be this week's episode. But, guys, we got some breaking news. We have something to report. Closer, I have good news. Data brought to us by the Botham spies. We can send a clear transmission. There it is. Listen, listen. I'm not going to lie, guys. We um, I recorded the interview yesterday, and um, and, and we went over an hour. I was like, wow, it's a, it's a you know, solid show. Uh, this is going to be a long episode, guys, because I couldn't let the week pass without uh, talking about uh, the next 
Disney Plus series, officially from the horse's mouth. And by the horse, I mean StarWars.com. Star Wars The Bad Batch, uh, an all-new animated series set to debut on Disney Plus in 2021. Uh, Clone Force 99 from Star Wars The Clone Wars returns. That's the... Uh, that's the secondary headline. And and I'm just going to go straight to the press release as it reads. They're always pretty particular with the language here, so I'm interested to see how much they talk about Clone Wars in it. Specifically, they said, Today, Disney Plus has ordered its next animated series from Lucasfilm, the uh, Star Wars The Bad Batch, fresh off the critically acclaimed series finale of Star Wars The Clone Wars. The Disney Plus original series will premiere streaming services 2021. The series will follow... Uh, the elite and experimental clones, the Bad Batch, first introduced in Clone Wars, as they find their way in a rapidly changing galaxy in the immediate aftermath of the Clone War. Members of Bad Batch, a unique squad of clones that vary, uh, who vary genetically from their brothers, in the clone army, each possess singular exceptional skill, blah, 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 we know. We saw the episodes. <clears throat> Here's the quote. Here's the quote. Giving new and existing fans the final chapter of Star Wars The Clone Wars has been the our honor at Disney+. Plus. Uh, we are overjoyed by the global response to this landmark series, says Agnes Chu, Senior Vice President of Content at Disney+. Plus. While The Clone Wars arc may have come to its conclusion, our partnership with the groundbreaking storytellers and artists from Lucasfilm Animation is only the beginning. We're thrilled to bring Dave Filoni's vision. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're thrilled to bring... Who, I'm sorry, who's... Dave Filoni's vision to life to the next adventures of the Bad Batch. I'm a batch. I'm a boss. I'm a batch. I'm a batch. I'm a, that's, that's the theme song, guys. Um, <laughs> I mean, in, intriguing language so far. Very much highlighting Dave Filoni there. Um, the sort of tale of the tape in terms of production crew. The series is going to be executive produced by Dave Filoni, Mandalorian Clone Wars. Um, Athena Portilla, Portillo of Clone Wars and Rebels, Brad Rao, uh, Star Wars Rebels and Resistance, and Jennifer Corbett from Star Wars Resistance and NCIS. So those are that's a bunch of executive producers, dang. Um, with Carrie Beck uh, the, uh, and co-executive producer, as, as the co-executive producer, and Josh Rimes is the producer. Um, wow, there's so many producers. I don't even know how that works, um, but it's it's basically it's bringing it's bringing the gang back together from Lucasfilm Animation. Everything they've done with Rebels and Resistance and and that season of Clone Wars. That season of Clone Wars hit hard though, in a way that um, I dare say I don't think Star Wars Rebels did. And I I think it's the benefit of Disney Plus as a as a brand new big platform that was making a bunch of news, and Clone Wars was like a big flagship piece of content. So I think that helped, but there's something to say that Clone Wars uh, has this huge demand for characters uh, that have just been enormously popular in in Star Wars fandom. And and let's be honest, let's be honest, Clone Wars. This is Disney, the company that you know dove in headfirst with the the new trilogy, kind of. Um, you know, canceled the Clone Wars, kind of turned their back on the prequel era in some ways, in many ways. Um, this is the this is them admitting it. Clone Wars, and dare I say, the prequels, and dare I say, 
that element of George Lucas's Star Wars, the prequel era, the the oft maligned and the the oft I don't know mis mischaracterized and lampooned prequels that lived on through my childhood. Many of you listening to this podcast, your childhood. Um, and lived on through the Clone Wars into my teenage years. Uh, it refuses to die. And that's like my favorite thing ever. Clone Wars will not die. And and if anything, that's the sweetest piece of this news. Oh, it just tastes sweet, this news. I will say, I, 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 won't, be a, I won't be all entirely this like rah-rah positive. I, I will say this. I'm surprised Bad Batch is the angle they're going for. I really thought that they would have gone to try to, I don't know, put uh, put better known characters at the front, that more beloved characters, because Bad Bad they were just barely introduced in the in the final season, and and I, I that was my immediate reaction. But you know, I, I, Rex did join them, and so I I think Rex is certainly the most popular character clone from the Clone Wars, and then later Rebels. So I think there's an element of like the fact that Rex is going to be a part of it, but. The other thing I think is they, they really kind of took a look at themselves and thought about, I, I mean, I can imagine this. You're sitting in a Disney boardroom meeting somewhere um, and you're like, all right, yeah, new trilogy's done, spin-offs are done, Taika Waititi's working on whatever his thing is. What should we do for Disney Plus? What's worked? What's been popular before? Uh, Old Republic? All right, sweet. We'll do a High Republic series. <laughs> And I can imagine in the next breath. All right, so what what what's worked? What's been popular in the in games and stuff? And I'm I swear to God, somebody said Republic Commando, because that's kind of what Bad Batch is. Um, each clone with their unique personality on a small team. It's it's Republic Commandos. Um, so I I, I think that's probably the angle that they're going for here, especially where it, they they talk about the they talk it's the post Clone War era. Uh, the immediate what's the language they use uh they find their way in a rapidly changing galaxy in the immediate aftermath of the clone war um interesting that they say the clone war instead of plural uh plural i guess that there's that's the clone war that's the first time i've ever seen that in an official capacity i'd be interested to see if that if there's something to it so I don't know. Hit me up with your reaction. Uh, Star Wars Report at Gmail dot com. Uh, Star Wars Report at Gmail dot com. I should do a quick, uh, big old shout out to everybody uh, who's been emailing us your specific um, rankings of the films. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll toss out. I, there's a good number of you guys who actually emailed in, but um, here's a, an, e- an email from a guard. Uh, he says, "Hey, I was surprised to see Rice take third slot." Uh, from Return of the Jedi, thanks so much. And he attached his uh, screenshot of his top uh, top films, which uh, topped out with Empire, bottom out with Phantom Menace. Oh, my heart hurts. Attack of the Clones is right behind it, though, so we're mostly in the same same spot. Um, thanks, guys, for for participating. And um, you know what? I'll I'll wrap this opening segment to the close. I just had to get like my immediate reaction on on the on the Bad Batch news and, and hit us up on, on, on email and on social media at star wars report but without further ado um i'm just going to toss straight and let the episode play out this just super cool frankly pretty casual and honest perspective refreshingly honest perspective on 
on Star Wars and Lucasfilm as it has evolved over the years um, from the perspective of a guy who was was in the midst of it. Uh, Mr. Jonathan Rensler. Next. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. The circle is now complete. All right, everybody, welcome back uh, to the Star Wars Report. And I have on the line right now with me, um, I would say one of my, if not my favorite, uh, Star Wars author when it comes to the behind the scenes of Star Wars. Uh, I've been a long time admirer from a distance on my Amazon wish list of the uh, making of Star Wars books, the original trilogy. And when I got one for Christmas last year, I very quickly devoured it. And then I had to buy both of the other ones. And I have them on my bookshelf right next to me as I record. And I have with me on the other side of Skype, anyway, the author, Mr. J.W. Rinsler. How's it going, man? That's going pretty well, yeah. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the Star Wars Report. I'm excited to talk to you, uh, really all things Star Wars. You've got, I'm going to lead off uh, right now, as you're listening to this podcast, new book out, All Up, uh, which is, I think could be best described as sort of historical fiction, but based on the space race and the space age. And I think it, we're, and I, I'm excited to bring, talk to you maybe a little bit more in depth at the end of the interview, but I wanted to plug it up here now. It's on, available on Amazon or wherever you buy books because it it digs into the 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 drama of two superpowers in the space race. And when it comes to dealing with the drama of superpowers, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> Star Wars has gone through its own uh, its own uh, transition through time. And I'm really excited to talk to you about. The a, a little bit about Lucasfilm and Star Wars in a very casual format, just to kind of get your history with the franchise. So what's the story on how you originally got involved with Star Wars and with Lucasfilm? Um, well, uh, be, before I get into that, I just want to say that All Up also covers what's not covered usually, which is the first part of the space race, which is all of World War II and the development of the V-2 rocket. Ah. And different superpowers you have. United Kingdom and MI6 trying to figure out what the German army is doing. They, they think they're doing something with rockets, but it, it's controversial because in theory, you couldn't do anything with rockets. It mm. was considered impossible. So then you had, you know, the United States as well involved and uh, the Soviet Union, but it was mostly the UK versus Germany in this first phase. So uh, it covers the whole story. But anyway, so getting to, to Lucasfilm, uh, and uh, how I got there, you know, it was definitely something that I had wanted to do since uh, I first started looking for a job. Uh, I applied to ILM back in the late 80s as a matte painter because I was seriously into oil painting at the time. And I thought, oh, I can do matte painting, but <laughs> I was a little bit naive about it. And, uh, and then I, uh, you know, life happened. And then later in the late 90s, about ten, a decade later, I, I returned to the United States after being away. And I really wanted to work at Lucasfilm. We were in a town called Petaluma, which isn't that mm. far from Skywalker Ranch, which I sort of slowly figured out. And I, I applied for several jobs till I got a job at Lucasfilm as a nonfiction editor. Also fiction, though. It was both. Um, <clears throat> but in uh, 2001, so they were in the middle. They'd finished shooting it episode two but they were just starting the visual effects and things like that oh interesting so, and and that's kind of at the the height of prequel fever i mean the phantom menace had just come out and it it it, it 
was it at the time something that um like everyone was was trying to do was it the place to be like um what was the atmosphere like when you actually entered the company in the midst of the making of the prequels there was there was a lot of excitement uh you know and definitely there were people who wanted to work at lucasfilm there always were applications people would throw their resumes over the <laughs> over the barrack at skywalker ranch you know <laughs> Uh, well, that's one way yeah. to do it, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't think it worked for anybody, but <laughs> uh, it, it, but it was a it was a real mom and pop operation. That's what it's hard hard, hard to imagine. Um, it started out as a mom and pop operation with George and Marsha Lucas. Uh, obviously, they got divorced around '83, and um, but it was still a privately owned company, and on this glorious glorious grounds which are known as skywalker ranch is huge property in marin county uh, which later just a couple of years after i joined also included big rock ranch mm. which is just big, uh, yeah a mile road but the same property and and uh, so it was just it was pe- people were very excited you know episode one episode one had come out and obviously con- controversial in terms of the critics and and some fans but they'd done very well at the box office and Episode two was in, you know, going full forward. And then, you know, they're already talking about episode three. And that's where I got more involved. But I was also, you know, editing the making mm-hmm. of and art of episode two books and a whole whole slew of episode two books. So it was just real exciting. My first day there, my first full day, mm-hmm. I, I got to watch a rough cut of episode two on a VHS copy. They just stuck me in a room with a little TV. <laughs> And uh, said, "You got to you got to know this because you're going to be editing all these books about it." And then that we had lunch in the main house in the dining room of Skywalker, and at a table about you know seven feet away was George Lucas, Rick McCallum, uh, Carrie Fisher, and John Williams. So it was like, "Oh my God!" I, you know, I'm in Oz. <laughs> it was just amazing. That that's that. I mean, it it had to kind of feel surreal, and it, and it does. You you describe it. It feel when you say mom and pop shop, it it does kind of remind me of that, uh, in a way that I'm sure it's it's completely different today. But I, actually, if I could nerd out with you for a second, I, I'm curious because you mentioned the sort of mom and pop shop idea and and, and Marsha Lucas's original involvement um, in the original trilogy era, and and I'm not I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I, I'm guessing you are. It, there's a um, there's a, a unofficial book. It's the Secret History of Star Wars. Um, I have a copy. It's right across. It's right across from me over there. But it, it's a. It's a really. It's sort of a graduate thesis on kind of exploring and examining all of the various iterations and scripts and development of Star Wars. And it. Um, uh, it. It. I, I would actually. It, it kind of complements the the making of Star Wars um, quite well. But it. I remember in both that when you talk about the growth of Lucasfilm originally, something I was just really curious about after reading um, after reading it was it seemed like Skywalker Ranch, when you got there in the midst of the making of the prequels, had become and was well-established to be exactly what George Lucas wanted when he was making the original trilogy. It really, reading about it originally, it seemed like Star Wars was George's way of making his own you know, Hollywood North, Skywalker Ranch was the dream that he was working to or, towards through all of the making of the original trilogy. 
Um, but it, it seemed like he got to the end of the end of Return of the Jedi, and it had taken such a toll on him and the family. And and it it seems it's 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 this sort of dramatic and maybe even bittersweet story that I feel like um, hasn't been really told. I, I don't know if you have any insight into that, or if that can describe your experience coming into that and and then going back and looking at to what made Skywalker uh, Ranch. I hope I hope I'm making sense. So yeah, so uh, George's dream of Skywalker Ranch was actually a, a, a joint dream that he had with Francis Ford Coppola of starting a, a film company away from Hollywood, which they started in Ameri- with American Zoetrope back in 69, uh, I think they founded that company together. And that's a whole other story. So by the time Star Wars came out, it was already eight years later. And uh, it, that allowed him to buy the first sort of parcel of land, but it was really Empire, which he financed uh, himself, himself, and uh, which allowed him to then really become kind of uh, Disney-like in the sense that he had these films that he made were, were two-dimensional and ethereal, which you can't mm-hmm. touch, uh, really, although now you sort of can at Disneyland, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then, um, But then he was building this sort of... You, uh, filmmaker community uh, at the ranch that was his dream and he poured a huge amount of money I mean just mind-boggling amounts of money into it and it was all very uh, much like a a, a a dream quest because it was so it was off the beaten track it's not easy to get to and uh, it wasn't practical <laughs> you know he yeah. had to in so many ways and yet he he did it and it and it worked for several decades. I mean, it's an incredible feat and it's so beautiful. And I hope that, you know, it'll be turned into a museum one day. I mean, I know he's making his own museum down in mm-hmm. LA, but I, I don't know what will happen in, you know, a hundred years from now to Skywalker Ranch, but I hope that it's, it's maintained and, and, and preserved because it's just fantastic. And it was a fantastic place to work. Yeah. I mean, it became what he what he dreamed. It, it seemed like a long time before he got there. I, I, I sort of got the sense that uh, maybe he he got to the end of, of Jedi and, 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 you know, faced all the stuff with his family life and the stress of Empire and, and Jedi famously took a huge toll on him. And I mean, he, he didn't make films for almost a decade. Um, and, I, and I wonder if that's if, if that's part of it. I, I'm so glad that what he... I, I guess what he saw this this sort of like a paragon of um, of what a filmmaking community could be came to fruition in time for the the prequels because because that's that's me I, I'm a kid of the prequel generation the first film I ever saw was the Phantom Menace mm-hmm. um, and and I loved it I loved Darth Maul he was freaking cool jumping around like there was so much information thrown at the screen all at once I wasn't familiar with the universe of Star Wars but I was in, instantly intrigued by the whole world of, of Star Wars and and I just remember and, and I now have the benefit as I've sort of gotten older and, and gotten more and more into and more and more of a fan of the original trilogy and the making of those films that it's it's kind of interesting to see how it took a long time for him to be able to make that that dream of reality. It took him a long time to, yeah, Skywalker Ranch, they didn't move in till 85, 86, and then it was very gradual, and there was always work being done. It was never, ever a finished project. I'm sure he's doing stuff now. Yeah. Uh, and when I was there, they put in a whole uh, bunch of olive trees. They 
added uh, screening rooms to buildings. I mean, they it, was, it just never stops. Uh, it's like the Winchester House. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and then of course he bankrolled ILM. I think that's what you're talking about to some to some extent. Is this filmmaking community where he developed he he paid for these genius technicians and craftspeople to what to create what became uh, digital movie making. Uh, he was a big, big part of that. Yeah, it's and it's it, it's crazy to look at, at at how it became, and then it 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 was its own thing. I mean, think about Jurassic Park and ET mm-hmm. and all these other films that Island was involved with. That they were that was sort of the proving ground. All these classics that uh, he sort of got to ramp up the the prequels uh, on the shoulders of those victories when it comes to like the technological development, which is kind of interesting where that that's where you enter the picture. You kind of get the, I guess, chance to see this machine uh, in full motion run, run by the fearless leader, Rick McCallum, because let's not, let's not joke around. I get the sense that when it comes to the insane machine that was the prequel production, that was definitely the guy who was cracking the yeah. whip. <laughs> he was definitely cracking the whip. He was definitely a producer in the old, sense of the word you know, it was a, you know he was the only producer there weren't a bunch of associate producers running around or executive producers except for george who was bankrolling it uh rick was running the show production wise and of course in constant daily hourly contact with george uh it was a, i mean i can't even come close to uh imagining all the things he was doing on a given day to make sure that these those three films happened and the Indiana Jones Chronicles before that that's mm. where they really got to know each other uh <clears throat> which is you know you could write a whole book about that TV show yeah Definitely. It, I was just curious how old were you when you saw Phantom Menace yeah I was let's see I would have been about nine years old yeah about nine, nine ten years old when the first time okay. I saw it it's which basically prime prime age I think to see that movie because um, I, I and I still to to me it's crazy looking back at the prequels now and this is almost like um, sub generation or sub uh, cult, subculture I guess of of Star Wars fans that are of the prequel generations that spawned uh, like if you're familiar with it the the prequel means Reddit page like a big gathering of the idea that these movies are very memorable and memeable to people my age. And we love quoting we love quoting random Captain Panaka lines <laughs> or Jar Jar lines, you know. And, and there's just like this, even because they're so, uh, they're so poppy, like they're so pop cultural. In the same way that, in a way that the that the original Star Wars is, they have so many of these elements of um, popular film throughout them that they're just very action packed, quotable digestible adventure films and that's i think as a kid why i loved them so much and i and i see the thread now as an adult when i look at the the action sequences and the the peppy fast dialogue of a new hope and you know princess leia and uh solo bickering at each other just like they're you know bogart uh in an old bogart movie like it it kind of reminds me of that in the same way that like phantom menace you see if you watch the pod race you if you go back and watch uh other classic films like Ben Hur, you get so many like elements that are right out of other old school Hollywood productions, and I I just love the way that these those films are so layered, and you can really see what those connections and throwbacks are. 
yeah, it's a, it's the onion that I talked about in that in one of in my live stream. Yeah, it's George mm-hmm. Lucas's onion. He, that's how he described Star Wars. You, know, you peel away one layer, and there's another mm-hmm. layer, and another layer, and another layer, and that was an, intentional on his part. Yeah, and, uh, the quite quite an achievement. You know, I- just that part. He he famously yeah famously quoted that it was it was this the 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 layered onion approach which I I'm curious kind of on the prequels and and I'm gonna say hashtag sorry not sorry for so many prequels questions but it's such a cool opportunity to ask you about it I I understand you got to you got to like visit the sets too right for episode three so I pitched Rick McCallum not long after I got there I'm doing an episode three behind the scenes book that would just chronicle everything every aspect mm. of the making of the film. And he, in the office that day, said, fine, that's that's what we're going to do. And uh, I really owe him a lot. And I wasn't going to write it. That's another story. Um, but eventually I ended up writing it. But I was taking notes from that moment on. And so, yeah, I was in every, pretty much every art department meeting, concept art meeting, uh, other things that were happening during pre-production. And then on the set for... Uh, a month in Australia and uh, I could have been there the whole time but I had to do my day job which was still editing all these other books and uh, and then I was there for the two weeks to the pickups in at Shepperton in England and uh, and then there were you know the animatics and dailies at ILM and editing and I got to sit in with Ben Burt and John Williams and George during the spotting of the music oh wow just, just Amazing, amazing experiences all the time. As I said, we could do a whole podcast on episode three. It was just an unbelievable uh, opportunity, and I'm I'm so uh, in debt to George and, and Rick for letting me basically hang out the whole time <laughs> you know, with a little notebook. It was very low tech. I'd sort of yeah scribble things down and then go write them up later and. And I wish we could do, redo the episode three book, so it was more of a coffee table book. But that was back then; we couldn't convince the publisher to do a big coffee table size book. They just they didn't understand that fandom was ready for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I like the 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 making of the original trilogy have become sort of a a holy grail of of Star Wars fandom and collecting. Like they, <laughs> I wasn't kidding about like I remember it being plumped in my Amazon wish list for a long time of just like saving my pennies and then I eventually just had to give in because that kind of behind the scenes that kind of behind the scenes access and 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 product just doesn't exist anymore the fact that what you're able to do with the original trilogy especially um it, it gives you insight into the creative process in this very holistic warts and all approach which we we got in the a lot of the making of documentaries and we got really in the episode 1 documentary um mm-hmm. But you don't get that with films anymore. It, it, with Hollywood films in general, you you get a much more sanitized version of the production process. And and to me, that just doesn't tell that doesn't do justice to the creative people who are are you know pouring out their hearts and souls and you know wrestling with really tough decisions and running into really you know rough uh, you know production issues. Like that's as someone who appreciates the final product, I love learning that history. Yeah, well, that's a testament, really, to George Lucas. He was the one who made all of that happen, and he's the one who is, who also, you know, there are pe- people, directors and producers, some of them like that stuff, some of them don't, you know. 
they can't all like it. But, sure. But George liked it. He liked chronicling how things were done. It was the anthropological side of him, uh, the kind of legacy side of him. And uh, he was not afraid. It didn't bother him if people disagreed or, you know, it was, if, if somebody said there was just something that was completely wrong, uh, then what wouldn't go in the book and yeah. explain why. There's very, very little of that. Um, he was very happy to have opposing points of view as long as his point of view was in there. Um, whereas, you know, now most studios are run by marketing people. And this has been true for a long time. And, and even before, they, they were not always interested in showing the sort of seedy, controversial, <laughs> <laughs> as Rick would say, brain damage that would go into making a standard movie or definitely a big budget movie. It's a, it's a lot of conflicting personalities and massive egos and people trying to be creative butting up against each other. So it's normal that there's conflict and heartache. Uh, but it's always interested me. And uh, But I understand people who don't want to do it because they think it destroys the magic. So, you know, there's, mm. you can argue both ways. It is. It is. And it's, I, I've seen both sides of that card now because I, I, I think um, what we're realizing it, and I'm going to draw this contrast now. I don't know how much this, how much you know about it, but I think it would really illustrate it for our listeners. Well, I, I think if you look right now at two very different processes for telling behind the scenes story, and that's the, two series on the on Disney Plus. One is Disney Gallery the Mandalorian, which walks it's John Favreau hosting a sort of series of roundtables and showing a bunch of behind the scenes on the Mandalorian production. And then you have um The Making of Frozen 2 into the unknown. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm referencing The Making of Frozen 2 documentary come at me. Um but but if you look at the two differences of the the process, you see how uh, the director, I, feel, oh, I, I lost track of her name. It's not sitting at the top of my noggin. But the director of Frozen 2, she and her co-director and producer bring in a documentary filmmaker and production team into the entire process. And they chronicle the heartache that goes where they, they can't ref- they're having trouble refining the movie and refining Elsa's motivations and what her journey. And, and it doesn't make sense. In the final, what was supposed to be like the big musical number that brings everything together at the end just wasn't working and they're having meeting after meeting throwing out sequence after sequence bringing in actors to record again like spending millions and millions of dollars trying to figure out this final piece of the film but it's this it's this human drama of the of creative people like they're showing the really tense conference meetings where people are fighting back and forth about the creative decisions and it's i would dare say almost as gripping if not more gripping than the actual movie Frozen 2. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, where, whereas Gallery Mandalorian is much more of the the more traditional, I guess, uh, and, and certainly modern approach of it's a series of interviews of all the filmmakers and, and actors, and they show some cool behind-the-scenes footage, but they don't really show anything in the in the decision-making or the creative process. It's, it's a lot of... Um, and and I, think, I think this is just the nature of, of some filmmakers, is that it, it's easiest to just be very positive and affirming and that's good but you don't really get a full i guess story of of the um of of the heart heartache and sweat and blood and tears that goes into the production and i'm not talking about trying to dig up drama or like conflict or something like that but i really i I really think that's that's missed a little bit today well you know i was lucky in that my interests dovetailed with rick and george's interest in in Mm -hmm. creating 
and doing a, a really detailed behind the scenes book. And uh, there's always thing there's always some things that you're going to leave out for legal reasons and sure. things that, that are personal and don't really, you know, the whole world doesn't need to know certain things. Uh, so there's always some gray area. Where do you draw the line? Yeah, and, you know, it's just different for every every production. Uh, but I've always thought it'd be funny to do a a mock. Yeah, one of those mock fan things where people are saying, you know, the actor, whoever the actor is saying, oh, we got along so well, and you just cut to the director and actor trying to strangle each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you, uh, did you ever um, uh, get a chance to see some of the um, the dynamics between George and actors? Because I know he's, he's often, he's the, the first to admit he's not really an actor's director, as much like with Empire, that's something very much that was the case. But it, did you get a sense, especially by episode three, there was a sort of well-established, I don't know, I hate, I, I, I don't want like to shine a light on it, but I think it's fair to say there's a, a certain level of backlash in fandom and media, certainly against the Phantom Menace. Did that really, did that affect the actors um, and people on set? Or was it still pretty hunky-dory? Uh, I couldn't say really if it affected the actors. Uh, I mean, certainly they were reading the reviews, but I don't know. I spent the most amount of time with Hayden Christensen. I spent one whole day shadowing him from like from the beginning of his day to dropping him off back at uh, his wherever he was living. So I, I really got an insight into mm. how sort of strange it is to be sort of by yourself and then suddenly on the set with. 75 people all wanting you to perform your scene flawlessly because it's costing <laughs> money and the huge amount of pressure. And I remember going, and how do you handle this? And he said, oh, this is fun. And I thought, fun? This is fun? <laughs> so that was an insight to me. And obviously it was fun for him. He, he seemed uh, pretty unaffected in, then in some ways because that has to be a lot of pressure, especially like at the time, it's, it's the last Star Wars movie. I mean, there's got to be even added pressure to get it right. Yeah, and I remember he was he was stoked to finally put on the Darth Vader armor and cape. That was exciting. The whole like everybody who could on the studio premises was sort of crowded around the doors of the exterior doors. Everybody wanted to get a glimpse of him as Darth Vader. Mm. You know, not necessarily doing the scene, but you know, walking from the dressing room, which I think was on. Pretty sure it was on stage, um, but he made maybe he made an appearance outside. I don't remember. Mm. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of excitement and, and fun in there too, and yeah, George George has always been very clear. He's not one of those movie directors who comes from the stage or something. Who's really more interested in, and some directors are more interested in working with the actors than they are the camera. They let the DP run the camera more or less. Um, George was, you know, George Barry. He said to me, he really did not doesn't like being on set. He just doesn't like it, and. Uh, and it's in the book, episode three book. He comes to the stage, the sound stage one morning, and he just says to himself, "Why am I putting myself through this? <laughs> uh, this is, it's not fun." His leg at that time, I think he had he had hurt his legs, so he couldn't walk, you know, as comfortably as he liked, and just huge amounts of pressure and and you know, legal things happening and and. Every you know, question, a thousand questions a day, mm. which he, you know, which he says, if you don't know the, if you're, if you think you want to be a film director, if you don't have a, the answer to that to these thousand questions in basically about one or two seconds, then you're not a film director. Every one of those questions has ramifications down the line, 
Yeah. And so it's a, it's a, it's an amazing process. Did George, um, wrap episode three, um, ready to, ready to be done with star Wars? Do you, or do you, do you think that, that having what did he always have in the back of his mind, as he alluded to in some of those old interviews from the seventies of, of, more films, more stories, or do you think that was he always thought that maybe other storytellers would would move forward? Because I, I know, I think, I mean, it's obvious that his passion for for Star Wars was still there because of his work with the Clone Wars after. But um, maybe did did his passion for making Star Wars films was it done at that time in, at Revenge of the Sith? I think every he'd go through a cycle. I think after every big project, yeah, it was like I'm done, I'm retired. And then he'd slowly get back into it. Then he'd be done, and he'd be retired, and then he'd get, slowly get back into it. Yeah, that, that basically his mo, uh, which is understandable. And then there was a period, you know, between the original trilogy and the prequels, where he was waiting for visual effects to kind of catch up with what he wanted to see in a movie. And uh, but he was meanwhile bankrolling everything that ILM was doing and keeping close tabs on everything. So it was, oh, I think he, you know, he's like Gene Roddenberry. He created this universe, and then he had fun playing around with it. Uh, I think he really enjoyed doing all the Clone Wars episodes because yeah. then he didn't have to go to a soundstage. You know, he could just have fun with the writers, fleshing out the stories, read the scripts, and then you know show up in the editing room. I mean, simplifying, uh, but the whole part of painful getting up at five a.m. in the morning. And not seeing your family very much, you know, for months on end, mm. all that was gone. Yeah, it, it it does. I mean, it makes a big difference. And I think it's kind of like, it's almost like after a, a long vacation that's like, ended up being working, like glad to be home at the end of it, in some ways, because it seems I mean, it's got to be so much, such so amazing to be working on a Star Wars film. But you got to be pretty pooped by the end of it. Yeah, and he doesn't. He's not a fan, right? He's yeah. Not a, to him, it's and believe me, once you're there for a several twelve-hour days, fourteen-hour days, the magic of seeing somebody with a lightsaber, which at this time is just a, a handle with a stick coming out of it, the, it, it, it sort of wears off. It never wear. I mean, for me, it never wore off that much. But for him, I mean, imagine this is his sixth movie. You know? <laughs> it's not relating to it that way, although. He was also a kid at heart, so I think he did enjoy seeing the sets. You know, Grievous's flagship the set was incredible, and uh, you know, I don't know how much he would admit to that, but I'm sure part of him was enjoying some aspects of it. <laughs> That's fair. Well, and I think especially when you have the ability to see what you have in your mind come to life, like that—that's probably got to be one of the, the cooler parts of it for sure. Yeah, and he definitely enjoyed working with all the concept artists, you know, in the, in the, and I guess in some ways the most creative phase or the most blue sky phase. That was really fun, you know, with Ryan Church and Eric Tiemens. He was definitely <clears throat> really enjoying that. Yeah. Art. He loves art, and uh, which is why he's making this big museum. Yeah. And uh, pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into it. I mean, that's not a something that everybody does. It's, he's a very unique individual, and, and clearly he enjoyed 
I think he enjoyed editing. Although at the end, the last time we spoke, he said that even editing sometimes was a drag, but mm. I think he might have been <clears throat> uh, not in the greatest feeling that positive towards it at that, that particular day. Yeah, that's fair. Well, and I, I think that that kind of leads to um, at least I was hoping to get your perspective and paint the picture a little bit about what it was like at the company as you guys, uh, not just sort of like the announcement of the new films coming and stuff like that, but like actually the the, the day of how how was your experience um, learning that uh, George had had sold to Disney? Was it a surprise to you or the company? I don't know about the, the company is pretty broad. I mean, I'm yeah, sure, some, sure most people were surprised. Uh, I was surprised. I, I've said that I had thought that one day he would sell the company to Disney because I just couldn't see any other company on the, in the, you know, the studios that could guarantee that his characters would live on. I mean, Disney has that reputation and has that lineage. Uh, but I was very surprised when it happened that particular day i thought it would be 10 years from that day yeah so yeah it was a surprise and we all got in cars and buses and vans and drove over to point richmond for this sort of goodbye uh ceremony it wasn't really a ceremony but this goodbye talk it was very uh, emotional what it was george able to like um give his uh his, give his farewell his his sort of um I guess uh, blessing or well wishes to the to the future because it's it's got to be this it's this huge turning point for the franchise and I'm sure all of us especially as for just me as a fan I remember hearing it and not being like incredibly surprised I expected something like that but again like you maybe in in ten years and further da- further down the road I just imagined he would keep publishing and working on television series maybe work on the live action series that they were working on but. Um, right. Yeah, it did. It did. What What was his? Um, I guess parting words. Well, I think unfortunately that sort of falls under the NDA. That's fair. It's a little extra on specificity, but I, I, I guess I just wanted to get a sense of maybe um, the what the transition was like. But I, if, if you can, yeah. Well, I think I, you know, I can say that I felt emotional. Yeah, uh, I was bawling or anything, but it was uh, it was clearly the end of an era. Mm. and the beginning of another era and at the time i was uh optimistic you know because disney i mean it's walt i was thinking you know walt disney and and, uh even the second you know the wave which which i'd seen with my kids you know little mermaid and aladdin and lion king and it's like yeah this could be interesting yeah it is it's 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 interesting because it it we now sort of have the um the benefit of short term short term hindsight and seeing what what Star Wars is like now and and I, everyone has their own strong opinions about the the current films but I I will say this there's that nothing I don't think anyone would disagree that uh, Star Wars is is very different without without George behind it yeah it was in, in inevitable no matter what happened sure. it could not possibly replicate his vision. And uh, particularly as, as he said in the press at the at the in the years that followed, that he was essentially uh, ignored, or however you want to put it. And Bob Iger has written in his recent memoir that he kind of regrets how yeah. that happened. I read that. Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody. I didn't read the book, but I definitely read the 
the um, the excerpts that were in in all the news stories. So it was, you know, but all of that was more or less inevitable. And now it's going to go through probably various cycles, you know, just like the Sherlock Holmes character does, you know, after <laughs> Conan, Conan Doyle, I don't think he ever sold it, but whatever happened, I'm not an expert on that history, yeah. but you know, Conan Doyle's gone through all sorts of, I mean, Sherlock Holmes has gone through all sorts of uh, incarnations. Yeah. I will say, not related to the company, but I think the the, the greatest indication and, and that what you're talking about, you're alluding to Bob Iger, just to paint the picture for the audience, if you guys aren't familiar, in his new memoir, talked about uh, George going on 60 Minutes and talking about um, the transition away from using his stories and kind of how he felt in that moment about um, where Star Wars was going. And um, he wasn't happy about it. <laughs> He was he was a little grumpy, and by a little grumpy, he said Star Wars had been taken taken by the white slavers. A, a, a comment that he uh, apologized for because I think he was using extreme language because he was trying to illustrate the emotion of the moment. But you can see it if you watch the interview as he's talking across from his old friend Charlie Rose. Like um, the emotion was was real for him. What what was your what was going through your mind when you when you saw that? Uh, what did I? Well, I didn't. I wasn't watching it live. I think I heard about it the next day, and I just thought, uh, you know, he was, if you see the whole thing, he was he was sort of exaggerating to make a point. Yeah, and I think, I personally think that, you know, and I don't know what was going on behind the scenes too. There's always stuff going on behind the scenes. Sure, I'd explain why somebody is reacting the way they do, but. I remember there were things that happened where people made fun of Star Wars or Lucasfilm, and there were people at Lucasfilm who'd completely freak out. And George would just say, "Calm down, it's just one person's opinion, and it's a it's sort of it's a free country. People have a right to express themselves." And uh, and he would just say, "You know, ignore it," and it would go away. Whereas some people get really and I, again, there may have been justification for it, but other people want to call out the, you know, the, the extreme, call, calling up the person and, you know, protesting or whatever. I'm not saying that happened, but or, you know, getting your lawyer on the case. So everybody has different reactions. But I always admired George's ability to sort of rise above it. Yeah, it is. It's it's interesting because it, it that that's a testament to the man as a creative because because of how passionately he feels about star wars the fact that he was able to do that um and you see you see that that uh passion still there and i i will say i'm i'm encouraged when i see um him still involved at sort of a, a at a distance kind of the way they originally talked about when this when the sale happened that that george would still be sort of around and on the phone and it even seems like there was a a, a big rough patch there but i get encouraged with his at least uh involvement in v visiting the sets of the mandalorian some stuff like that i i think that it's very easy to oversimplify the creative process for, especially with a company as gigantic as Lucasfilm. And it's easy to like paint sides, like all Disney star Wars sucks. And I'm like, well, which one are you talking about the publishing or the Mandalorian series or one of the other series or the films or the spinoff films? Like there's a lot going on and a lot of different creative minds there. So I always am hesitant to sort of broadly paint um, right. something as complex as that. And I think George, you know, I, 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 I was there in the writer's room for the whole fourth season Clone Wars writing 
you know, whatever breakdown period, 15 days. And there's definitely a very strong bond, at least that's what I witnessed between George and Dave Filoni. Mm. And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and in, in Disney itself, I mean, I don't, I certainly don't want to paint a, a all encompassing dark picture of it. My experience was just with licensing and, uh, and I'm not even saying that's a hundred percent. And, you know, Disney employs, at least last I heard over 160,000 people. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, that's a, that's a lot of people that are gaining their livelihood through this company. And then there's all the ancillary people who are in a sense living off of Disney and their, and all the intellectual property. It's a big operation and it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it nothing's perfect. And, uh, so, you know, I don't yeah. know. whatever, <laughs> there that's, you go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I think, um, well, let me ask you this. I, I, and I think this would be maybe a good way to, to wrap it up because you, you've, you've had that exposure um, in, inside uh, Skywalker Ranch and, and the opportunity to be there in the midst of George creating. What would you, uh, reaching back to the, you know, the J.W. Rensler who's on set and, and, and the magic, even on those 12-hour days, there's still that little bit of, wow, I'm really here. That J.W. Rensler, what would you want to see in the future for Star Wars? What kind of project might uh, get you excited to return to that world? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that... It, because I'm now writing my own stuff and all up and, and have been freelance, mm. uh, I, to go back to that world would have to be very... I don't just don't see it really happening. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I just, yeah. So I had 15 years practically to seem like 24 hours a day, star Wars and with a little bit of Indiana Jones and some other stuff thrown in there, but it was really mostly star Wars. Yeah. I kind of, I had my fill and that was enough. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not going to see the, the new movies. It's just, I, you know, I, I saw the George Lucas version. <laughs> that was, <laughs> it was great. I'm just going to stop there. It would take a, a lot of people to tell me that this is, you have to go see this. You absolutely have to go see this before I even bother seeing another Star Wars movie or TV show. It's just, it's just a different flavor. It's just like Star Trek too. I'm not yeah. watching Star Trek stuff. I mean, there was the original series, the stuff that Gene Roddenberry was involved with. And you know, that's basically it. And then it goes on and it's something else. It's not bad. It's great. If other people are getting a lot out of it. Yeah. But uh, other things in life to pay attention to. For yeah. Me. Well, and I know because you, oh, mm -hmm. and I'm older. <laughs> That's fair. I, uh, it's, 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 it is, it's one of those things that, um, over time, o over time it changed. Like my, my appreciation for and what I like about Star Wars has changed drastically as I've gotten older too, even just for me as a prequel era kid. And I, I've only in recent years really come to appreciate so much more some of the original films um, and what they did and, and what they drew from and learning about their source material. Well, a lot of, a lot of thanks to, to you and your book. So for that, I thank you, sir. And um, I have to ask you, you mentioned you are work, continuing to work on other stories. And so I think it's a great time to bring up Available Now, where all books are sold, uh, a novel by J.W. Rensler, All Up. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about it because I know we we briefly spoke about it at the at the beginning of the podcast, but I'm just uh, interested to see what 
what that world was like for you to enter the the, the you know the pre-space race up to the space race and 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 trying to capture that in a world of fiction well it was a it, it was a you know all up is a historical fiction thriller so it's you know it's a great summer read if you want to read like a really fun book uh this summer i i you know obviously i'm partial but <laughs> all, all up will fit the bill and it's uh it's a page turner but it's also uh, based on facts, I'd say about ninety percent of it is uh, verifiable, you know, in various memoirs and biographies and so on. And uh, people who are reading it are immediately running to the internet, going, "I'm, I'm told," and saying, "Wait, did that really happen?" And yes, you know, ninety percent of it really happened. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so I just became really fascinated because I realized that I knew nothing about the first space age and i'm saying the first space age because people get really the space race is important but that's really half the story the yeah. other half begins before world war ii with these basically these like almost like single inventors and rocket clubs as they were just experimenting with these uh small rockets some of which were multi-stage most of them weren't um actually i don't even know if any of them were multi-stage but the idea of multi-stage rockets were around and uh, <clears throat> they were just uh, these wild dreamers. And then because Germany couldn't use conventional weapons because of the Versailles Treaty, they started developing rockets. And I think they also saw the, that if they succeeded, they would have one terrifying weapon. Yeah. And they were right. Uh, and they created the V2 rocket. And while they were doing so, MI6 was trying to figure it out. And they, you know, they launched this huge bombing mission there was a it was one of the biggest bombing missions of world war ii which is pretty much unknown uh against the german base and then the, you know the the meanwhile the germans were having their own uh internal uh wars because the ss was trying to get the uh rocket away from the german army because the ss had their own and this is harder to prove but it seems like they had their own secret weapons uh, uh uh, whatever her sector and there was a guy named Hans Kammler who's a real historical character uh, who's sort of the villain of the or he is the villain of the piece of the novel and uh, he was this really horrible person <laughs> and, uh, apparently and uh, but who who kind of has disappeared from historical annals and why that's up to debate um, there were some interesting revelations while I was writing the book about what happened to him. And so all this stuff kind of gelled. And, and then there's the main two protagonists of the book, Werner von Braun, who many people have heard of because he was sort of the face of NASA for quite a while. Uh, but he, you know, his past has surfaced and become more prominent. And so now he's kind of pulled down a bit. And then there's the Russian uh, his Soviet counterpart, Korolev, who, and I'm mispronouncing his name because I don't speak Russian, but he was this amazing character uh, who is arguably even more important than anybody who launched Sputnik and the first man in space and the first woman in space and uh, <clears throat> did it in a country where they just lost somewhere between 20 and 30 million people during this world war. Uh, you know, it's like, I don't even know what budget compared to NASA. But they, they were just gung-ho, 
Mm. Uh, it was crazy rocketeers working out in the <laughs> rush depths. I mean, it was it's just, and I can't even go, I can't do, it's always frustrating to me to talk about the book because I can't, I can't uh, uh, express all the little things that are in the book because it's also about humanity as a whole and, and our first steps into the cosmos as as explorers and pioneers. And what are we? Who are we as a species? And how? What are? Who are we going to be as we go now to Mars? And what are we going to exactly be spreading in in the solar system? Are we going to be? Yeah. Are we going? What kind of people are we? It's it it is like. In some ways, it's almost comedic looking back on it because the the, the crazy Russian ability and desire to um, launch themselves into the space race right after losing millions, millions of dead in World War II. Like if you look at just the, the sheer death toll compared to the rest of the allies in World War II is insane. But the fact that they jumped right in. Uh, mm-hmm. is it, it, it's it's a testament to um, Russian insanity in their own in their own way for pursuing something that crazy, uh, and then it becomes a quick testament to like all Americans need are just a sense of like we're losing, <laughs> so let's compete, and uh, that's then Kennedy gets to give his um, famous Rice University speech. We will go to the moon in this decade. I'll never right. <laughs> I I, yeah. I remember learning yeah. about that growing up in school and like seeing that Kennedy speech and. And just being kind of blown away because I was like, oh, yeah, we've always, you know, we've been in space. Yeah, the shuttle program. I grew up seeing those launches. But no, not not when my not when my parents were young. Like that's 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 not that long ago. Yeah. And I was old enough. So my parents woke me up and I I saw the moonwalk and uh, I went to the museum in Huntsville. I recommend anybody who's anywhere near Huntsville in Alabama should go to that museum because it's unbelievable what they've got there see an actual Saturn V on the side and the Saturn V is like the main character in the book you know once it's around it's just this unbelievable Mm -hmm. rocket that had a flawless flight record and uh, just the amazing amount of collaboration and intelligence and invention that went into that those programs is mind-boggling and and uh, I I would like to see that I think it's happening to start you know to because I think it unites the the whole world and the populations of the various countries in this endeavor to sort of explore our solar system and and even other galaxies one day. Yeah, that that I guess um, that desire and hunger I think is is surprisingly there more than I even thought it was with the recent um, SpaceX launch, where the the idea of the first I think it's the first fully privatized launch to the. Uh, international space station but the fact but just the amount of people that were watching that live stream and and i saw it on social media and there's just this hunger and desire and excitement to look uh beyond ourselves maybe especially right now yeah and there and and the the interesting thing which the book gets into it a little bit is you know it costs an enormous amount of money so it's interesting now that private sector is is bearing the brunt of a lot of that but uh, it's, it's an interesting trade-off. What do we spend our money on, and how do you justify it? Mm. And it's not. There was a huge amount of pushback back then. It's not like everybody said, "Yes, we're going to the moon." La 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 la. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it was fraught with problems every single day. Well, it, and, the, it was launched. I mean, the height of, of Vietnam was happening. Like, it's not exactly right. like American trust in um, in in government and military you know type spending was at an all-time high by the time they were finishing up the that that launch 
Yeah, and and, and um, uh, you know, I, I I didn't see uh, the recent uh, biopic on Neil Armstrong, but I heard it. There was some controversy because of what was sort of going on at that time. They kind of elided it, but Nixon was president, and Nixon, you know, they did plant the American flag on the moon, and Nixon called them, mm-hmm. and that's the reality of that period. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is um, a remarkable fulfillment. It's and it's I, I I still am optimistic at times. I think there are moments in history. And I think every generation has their own. But I think um, as much as the Neil Armstrong's words, um, "One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind," ring through the history books, I honestly think the the, the most studied speech should be Kennedy's Rice University speech because he inspired america he he laid a timeline like think of a president saying like this is the date we're going to mars like uh and then everyone just being like yeah let's do it i mean sure i mean like you say there's controversy and stuff but that that is a uh as as someone in the military myself and 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 looks at sort of leadership and persuasion is it's 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 an own part of a profession kennedy's ability to to persuade and to motivate and inspire just if you, you could literally just analyze that short, it's like a nine minute speech or something that short speech. And you can see the clear, the clarity of his vision. Um, and even though, he, and even up after his death, his vision was uh, accomplished with, of course, you know, the uh, pretty much full weight and effort of uh, American <laughs> competitiveness. Yeah. No, Kennedy was the one who, whom, I mean, there were other people, uh, there was uh, Lyndon Johnson had a lot to do with it too. Yeah, uh, Kennedy's speech is definitely the the crucible, and uh, and he got along. At least I don't know how well they knew each other, but I think they got along pretty well. Werner von Braun and and Kennedy, and and that's part of the amazing trajectory in the book is von Braun's because he you know this is a guy who was was pitching the rocket to Hitler yeah. in person, <laughs> yeah, in person, not just once, a couple times. And then who's later touring Eisenhower around the Space Center? And Eisenhower is somebody who is more or less actively trying to kill Von Braun during World War II. <laughs> and then, you know, and there they are. And then, and then Von Braun's touring Kennedy around. And uh, it's, there are very few stories in the history of humanity that are mm. as crazy as Von Braun's story and Korolev's. Mm, that that's amazing. Well, uh, I'm definitely as as we're recording this interview, it comes out tomorrow. I'm pre-ordering it right now so that it'll arrive. I'm really excited. Uh, it's gonna like you say. I think this is gonna be on on the summer staycation reading list for me because <laughs> uh, I know there's a lot of those going on. I hope you enjoy it. I hope everyone who reads it enjoys it as well and gets something out of it. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Jonathan, and 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 giving such insight and and letting me kind of dive in deep on on some of the behind the scenes of the prequels and lucasfilm from a from a time i i know it's it's a it's a sort of all-consuming chapter of your life but i really appreciate how much you've been open uh with it and sharing it with uh, a, a huge swath of the fan community um let, let people know if not just the the book but if they want to follow you and and your upcoming endeavors and i i know you mentioned on on your live stream on youtube um you're working on an upcoming book where you had the opportunity to interview um, Marsha Lucas. So I was asked to help uh, Howard Kazanjian write his memoirs and kind of to do it in a third person instead of you know an iBook, which I think is more interesting because he then uh, gave me access to certain people who he's known throughout his whole career, and 
the short version is one of those people, of course, was uh, Marshall Lucas, because Howard Kazanjian and George Lucas had met as students at USC back in the day, and then they stayed in touch and were, you know, George was actually constantly, for every project, asking Howard Kazanjian, who was first AD and then like a production manager and a producer, to, to do his films. And finally, Howard was able to, just before Star Wars came out, and he did more American Graffiti and uh, The End of Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so he and his wife were good friends with George and Marsha Lucas. And Marsha, you know, doesn't talk to people. She's just not interested. Um, but because of her connection to Howard, she agreed to do it. And I had the great honor. It was like a one of my... It's like a leftover dream that I had from Lucasfilm was to talk to Marsha because she's such an part of the important part of the equation. Yeah. And, um, and, and, uh, so it's not like it's a, the book is not Marsha Lucas's story, but her interview is featured throughout mm. and she wrote the forward to the book. And what she has to say is, is very interesting. And anybody who's interested in cinema, I think will be interested in the Kazanjian because he worked with so many people besides George. I mean, he worked with Alfred Hitchcock and Sam Peckinpah. And, oh, wow. And incredible. You know, he, he was the one who introduced George Lucas to uh, Francis Ford Coppola on the set of Finian's Rainbow, which was Fred Astaire's last movie where he actually danced. I mean, so there's all sorts of really cool stories in the book. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And that comes out um, the spring of 2021. And there's going to be a deluxe version. We should have news about that, hopefully, in a couple of months. Oh, awesome. Dude, you keep, I mean, just keep writing amazing books, and, I'm, and we'll keep buying them. <laughs> like, uh, that's, I, I can't wait. That sounds amazing. Doing my best. Just trying to eke out a living here. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Well, we'll have the link to, uh, to All Up um, in the notes. If you're listening to this, on, especially on Apple Podcasts, I know most of you are, just uh, swipe left, look at the uh, notes. We'll have a link to it right there. Super easy, uh, right there in your podcatcher. And uh, and then follow I'll follow you on uh, are you on Facebook and Twitter I think uh, I saw you on on Twitter so make sure we'll we'll have links for all those too. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, and uh, I've been more active lately because I'm you know plugging all up all the time. But yeah, I'm I'm around so on social media most of the you know a good deal of the time these days, and probably in the future too. Awesome, awesome, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and we'll uh, listen. We'll hope to have you back when uh, when the next one comes out. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's fun. It's a lot of fun to talk about this stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. We meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear, in an age of both knowledge and ignorance. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come. But condense, if you will, the 50,000 years of man's recorded history in a time span of but a half a century. Stated in these terms, we know very little about the first 40 years, except at the end of them, advanced man had learned to use the skins of animals to cover them. Then about 10 years ago, under this standard, man emerged from his caves to construct other kinds of shelter. Only five years ago, man learned to write and use a cart with wheels. Christianity began less than two years ago. The printing press came this year. 
And then less than two months ago, during this whole 50-year span of human history, the steam engine provided a new source of power. Newton explored the meaning of gravity. Last month, electric lights and telephones and automobiles and airplanes became available. Only last week did we develop penicillin and television and nuclear power. This is a breathtaking pace. And such a pace cannot help but create new ills as it dispels old. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer to rest, to wait. If this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. We shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked.